All right, that's enough for announcements. Let's dive into God's word, right? You guys ready? You're only this much more lively than 9 o'clock. That makes me nervous. Okay. All right. Ushers can come on forward with the Bibles, and uh, you guys can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 58. Okay, so the second half of chapter 15. And uh, last week, we talked through the first half of the chapter, and Pastor Nick taught us what are the three necessary responses to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Right, what are the three necessary responses that we need to understand and believe the gospel? Right, what is the gospel and how do I respond to it? I, I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and gave us hope for eternal life. That's our response. Uh, two, we consider the significance of that. So what's the big deal if it's false? And what are the amazing benefits if it's true? And then finally, that we need to live consistent with reality. Right? This is a historical fact that Christ rose from the dead. We can believe firmly in that. But how does that, how does that affect my life, right? What am I doing about that truth now? Right, verse 22 says that Christ's resurrection gives us that same hope of resurrection. So how are we living that out? Practically, what does that look like? So Paul goes on to expand on that in the second half of chapter 15. And uh, as we look at all that he has to say, we've, I've kind of narrowed it down into to three takeaways, three things that should be part of what we are doing today. And uh, specifically thinking about the hope of heaven. Right? Three ways that a Christian's pictured promise should fuel their present practice. As we look to heaven, what does that mean about how I should live my life now? And so I want to be clear before we get into the text. We are talking specifically to Christians, to those who have given their life to Jesus. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you would not say, I'm a follower of Jesus... These truths don't apply to you yet. Right? My hope is that through God's word, you would see that your need for a savior, that you would give your life to him, that you would have this promise for your future and that you can live in a way that reflects it now. But unapologetically, we're talking to believers this morning, all right? So let's dive on in. Starting at verse 35, we're gonna read just that verse to kick things off. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So before we get into the specifics, let's talk context, right? What is this question? Well, Paul is, is writing to the Corinthian church, and this Corinthian church was in an age of a lot of philosophers. The city was very academic. They were trying to be good thinkers, and uh, sometime, maybe not so, sometimes, not so different from today, we can be a little bit too smart for our own good, right? We can outthink ourselves. Academics maybe are thinking too much. And so in that, they are saying, hey, this idea of a resurrection from the dead is not logical. Right? You can't really come to that conclusion if you use reason. That's not a reality. But it's not just the, the Greek philosophers. The Jews themselves had the belief that a resurrection from the dead, and, and not trying to be crude here, was only from a dead, decaying corpse. Right? That doesn't get you too excited. It doesn't get me excited. I don't want to think about coming back as stinky skeleton and bones, right? So they're thinking, do we even really want this resurrection if it's a thing? That doesn't fuel me. So in classic Paul style, right, he anticipates these objections, and he asks himself the question that he thinks that they would ask him. Let's see how he responds as he anticipates this objection. Look at verses 36 through 38. You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. 
to each kind of seed its own body. So Paul clearly feels like this is a a dumb question, right? This is a ridiculous objection. And uh, he goes so far as to say this is a foolish person. And he says that's because you see stuff like this every single day. This is convicting to think about the, the miracle that is the plant life around us. A little seed looks like nothing that blooms into all kinds of diverse, beautiful plant life that we see around us. And Paul says, you sow this, right? You do this. You know that this happens. Guys, we cannot miss the miracles around us, but we also can't miss the fact that it's logical to think about the resurrection and having a resurrected body. See, our earthly bodies, just like a seed, are not the end product. It's not the end goal. The end goal is what comes next, right? What sprouts up from it. The seed must die as a seed and become a plant. Our earthly bodies must die and become eternal bodies, right? And what I think is is really cool is that God gives the body, right? It's God who gives the body. Just like he formed us in the womb before our our mothers and fathers even knew us, before we took a breath, he also formed us in our eternal state, what our body would be like forever, from the beginning, uniquely and wonderfully made, both now and in eternity. Right? Praise God for that. He is a good God who creates good things. We have that to look forward to in our eternal bodies. Let's keep reading now in verses 39 through the first part of verse 42. It says, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one kind of glory of the sun, and another glory, oops, too far, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For, the st- for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. All right, so what's, what's all going on here? Let's keep this simple. Bodies are suited for the environments that they will be in. Fish for the water, birds for the air, humans for our earthly walk, and someday we will have bodies suited to be with God, right, to walk with him. And verse 40 says, these bodies will include glory that is unique to us. We don't know exactly what that will look like, except that we are each a unique being, right? It talks about the difference of the sun and the moon and the stars. Are you guys catching the uh, relation to creation in Genesis 1, right? The things Paul's talking about here. But just like those each have their own glory, we will have our own glory. So it is with the resurrection in verse 32. Guys, we don't lose our individuality when we leave this life and head to the next. We uniquely shine as glorified bodies in the resurrection for God. And variety is good, right? We have variety on this earth of seeds, of plants, of animals, of people. How much better will that be in perfection in eternity? Again, this points us to the fact that we will have a body. One commentator said, a body provides a vehicle of communicative flourishing and identity recognition in community. In other words, we're gonna be able to communicate with God and we'll know the difference between one another. I think about that. Jesus, in his resurrected form, he had a physical body that they touched. He ate food. They knew who he was. He was recognizable. We have that same hope in heaven. Again, we don't know what exactly that looks like, but Paul gives some examples here of what that body will include. All right, so let's keep reading the second part of verse 42 through the end of verse 44. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Right, our bodies now are just a taste of what they will be in eternity. And from the seed analogy, right, we will have unique abilities from one another, but unique abilities from a seed to a plant, an earthly body to a heavenly body. If you guys are into taking some notes and seeing a good visual, this might be a time to start two columns, right? Earthly body, heavenly body, and see as we walk through what are some of these differences. First, we see the difference of perishable versus imperishable. Perishable versus imperishable, right? That means with decay or without decay. We see support of this in other scripture, like one that we all probably know well, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Imperishable, that is the hope that we have in Christ. We also see dishonor and glory, right? Sinful and sinless. Philippians 3.20 also echoes that. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our lowly bodies will be done with, and it'll be a glorious body. Weakness to power, right? 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul again writing speaks to this. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Right, that's the hope of God's grace in this life, that we will have his power when we allow ourselves to be weak. Multiply that times eternity. Then he talks about natural versus spiritual. Natural versus spiritual. So this is an interesting thing that we're going to spend a little time to talk about. I want to give us another passage that's actually from earlier in 1 Corinthians that highlights the difference. What is, what is he talking about? So 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying that those who are in Christ now are transformed inside. They are transformed from being natural or of the flesh to being spiritual, of the things of God. They are under, able to understand what he is saying, and that is the fuel that motivates their life. He's not talking about material versus immaterial, but rather our moral state of redeemed versus stuck in our sin. It's not what we're made of, but what we're fueled by. Uh, N.T. Wright gave me an analogy, and uh, by gave, I mean I read it in a book because I don't know him personally, right? He's, uh, someday may I'll meet him, I don't know. Anyways, here's the analogy that he shared. He shared that a boat, it's not the analogy of a boat made with steel versus a boat made with wood but rather it's the difference of a boat propelled by wind versus a boat propelled by steam. Not material versus immaterial, but fueled by the spirit and godly desires or fueled by the flesh and sinful desires. My believers, we are fueled by the Holy Spirit now, but in eternity we will experience that tenfold, right? Even more, in a more perfect way. Maybe a, a better way to contrast natural would be supernatural, I think superhero like Avengers, like strength and power and things that we don't really understand. Jesus was like that again. He could be touched, he 
8, he was recognizable, but yet he was so much more. He was so much more than that. He was supernatural. That's what we have to look forward to. And back in verse 44 to the sown versus raised analogy, right, the fool's subjection, he says, when you see a seed, you expect a plant. When you see a natural body, you expect a spiritual or a supernatural body. It's logical. It's logical. You're outthinking yourselves. This is something that we should expect. This is something that we can hold on to. Right? As believers, we have the hope of being bodily, visible, recognizable, but more than that, transformed and different in eternity. Let's keep reading. Finish off this section here, verses 45 through 49. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, the imagery that Paul uses here, again, is, is so helpful for us to realize the bodily resurrection that we have to look forward to. Right, he hearkens to, to Romans 5 as he compares Adam to Jesus. He talks about that Adam brings sin and death. Jesus brings righteousness or holiness and eternal life. Right. We're living like Adam now, but we will be like Jesus then. Right, you can add that to that list of comparisons. I know who I am more excited to look like. Jesus, not Adam, right? And the language that is used about Adam, we get straight from Genesis 2, right? That God breathed into him the breath of life and, and formed him out of dust. Right? Adam is a living being, but Jesus is life-giving. He gives life. Again, that's an that's a important distinction. Verse 46, as we read that, we can rule out the idea of incarnation, right? The natural, then the supernatural, not supernatural, natural, supernatural, natural, we're stuck in a cycle, right? Also, it combats beliefs like Mormonism that says, you are a spirit in heaven waiting to get a body. No, that's not right. We are a body first, and we need the Holy Spirit to renew us. Right? Jesus is the only human that is the unique case. He is the only begotten Son of God, the only one who existed before he took on flesh. And he did take on flesh. Right? Verse 47 says that he was the second man. That means Adam, who was a man, it was fully human. Jesus, as the second man, must also be human. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Yet in his humanity, he was, in his resurrection body, made of something different. My verse 48 says that there was a, a, a man of dust and a man of the stuff of heaven. Uh, a guy who led a mission trip for us in college to New Orleans used to talk about his dirt suit. This is my dirt suit, but I can't wait to put on my robes of righteousness someday. That was a unique and a cool illustration for me to help understand the difference. Guys, right now we're made of dirt. We're made of stuff of the earth, but someday we're going to be wearing the stuff of heaven. I don't even know what kind of threads those are, but they're going to be awesome. Right? We can look forward to that. And someday we will finally bear that image that we were created to bear, perfectly the image of God. Have you ever thought about the, the purpose of why we were created? What Adam was supposed to be doing in the first place? 
In my, my Bible geography class, some of you may know I had the chance to start seminary classes a few weeks ago, and that's one of the first courses is learning about the geography of uh, the scriptures and how uh, Israel just brings the word of God to life. And uh, one of the things they talked about is the idea that kings, as they spread out, would set up statues to the different places they conquered, essentially saying, look at me, I'm the man, see this statue, and remember who's in charge. Right? That was not their original idea. <laughs> they stole that from God who created man in his image to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Right? Our reason for being created was to be the visible image of the invisible God. I stole that from my professor. I don't come up with those kind of fancy sayings, right? The visible image of the invisible God. Jesus was the perfect visible image of God. That's why he's called the word of God, the, the exegete, or literally the one who explains God to us in his humanity. In Christ, now we can better reflect the image we were supposed to, right? but someday it'll be perfect. We will be made of the stuff of heaven and perfectly reflect God. Sin has marred that now, but it'll be fixed. We should long for that. Right, Romans 8, 22 and 23 says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9, we're not gonna talk through that this morning, but it's the idea of now we dwell in tents that we are longing to get out of and put on robes of righteousness, right? We would rather be away from the body and at home with Christ. We are yearning for this eternal resurrected body. And that's what our first application point is this morning. Yearn for a bodily resurrection, this word yearn, think, think intense longing due to separation, right? This is a, an emotional feeling, something that you are really, really wanting. Right? If you made a list, go back and look at that and compare and contrast. Which one do you want to have? What do you want your body to be made of? I know what I would choose, right? My resurrection body. I cannot wait for that. I long for that. But we do need to be careful, right? We need to be careful that we yearn appropriately, that's not to say, and I don't want you to hear me say, get out of this life now, right? That would be a wrong application. But what it is saying is that we shouldn't put our hope in the natural and perishable and earthly things of this world. Right? Our hope is in heaven, in the eternal, immortal, imperishable things of God. We shouldn't desire earth more than we desire heaven. We should not put our hopes there. Even in our bodies, we need to be good stewards of our bodies, right? Eat right, sleep exercise, but we shouldn't long for a six-pack more than we long for eternity, right? There's no physique more glorious than our resurrection body. Are we longing for that? Do we desire that to reflect the image we were made to create while we are here on this earth? 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, meaning Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right, we're God's children now, we're to reflect that, but man, we long for when we can see him face to face and we become as he is. All right, verse 49, that says, we shall bear his image. There'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more decay. God will heal. All those in Christ, God will heal you. That is a promise. Just some of us, that healing comes on the other side of eternity. 
but we still have that hope, that trust that God will heal us. That's a guarantee. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like to bear the image of God, to be made of the stuff of heaven, to be imperishable, to be eternal, but it's going to be worth the wait. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful, right? Paul wouldn't have taken this time to spell it out if it wasn't worth us knowing that we will have a resurrection body. Even we can't fully wrap our minds around it. I think it's good that it's beyond our imagination, right? If we could grasp it, maybe it wouldn't be so great. Beyond our imagination, we should yearn for the resurrection body that Christ has for us. Well, let's keep reading verses 50 through 57 here in the text. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, he he starts the section off with an imperative, right? A a declaration which, which heightens the significance of what he's about to say. What he says is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not only do we get resurrection bodies, but we we have to have them, right? We need them. Verse 50 says we cannot inherit. Verse 53 says we must put on imperishable. We must put on immortality. We could not enter the presence of God without a resurrection body. Just like the priests couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies without lots of prayer and the covering of the blood of goats and rams, and even then they still had risk of death, We cannot enter the presence of our holy God without being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, without being clothed in his righteousness. But thank God, as we read in Hebrews 9, 12, that Jesus entered not by the blood of goats and rams, but by his own blood, right? Once for all, obtaining our eternal redemption. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have the opportunity to have a resurrection body, We have the opportunity to be in the presence of God, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. As we learned last week, that reality gives us our hope. Then Paul addresses the timing, and he's not predicting that Jesus was going to come in his day in verse 51 and 52, right? One, because that obviously didn't happen, and two, because the context is showing that he's just trying to describe the facts of a need of a resurrection body, I think about it. How can you have a resurrection body if you haven't died? It's a logical question, right? That's the timing he's trying to address. He says, even though we don't all die, we will all be changed. Everyone in Christ will be changed. So if any of us are lucky enough to still be breathing when the trumpets sound and Jesus comes back, right, we don't miss out on that hope of heaven. We don't miss out on a resurrection body. Even though we haven't died, we will still be changed. That's the timing that he's talking about. We can be thankful for that. And it's going to be quick, right? Literally in the blink of an eye or a snap for you Infinity Wars fans, right? It'll be quick. It'll be that fast, and it it will happen. 
right? The text says we shall be changed. When we put on, it shall come to pass. Eternity is coming. The trumpets will be announcing the return of the king. But for those of us in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of that. And Paul's tone reflects that. Right, verse 54 and 55, he's almost taunting death. He's almost wagging his finger at death, saying, not so fast, my friend. Right, quoting from Isaiah and quoting from Hosea, he's using biblical language to highlight that there's no victory for death. Right, even the victory that you think you've won is going to be undone. Death will be no more, and those who were dead will be resurrected. Right, immortality awaits. But for those who are in Christ, Paul makes sure to highlight even briefly, the facts of the gospel, the importance of the truth of what Jesus really overcame for us in verses 56 and 57. So we're gonna work this kind of backwards in verse 56, starting with the law. Right, the law is what sets God's standard. It's the standard of perfection, of holiness, the standard that we all fall short of, that we cannot reach. When we fail to reach it, that's, that's called sin. And that sin, that sin earns us Death, that is the wages for falling short of the goal, of the standard. But here's the deal. If it weren't for the law, we wouldn't have had our shortcomings highlighted. Right? The law is set to highlight and to even increase our sin. That's the power of the law, to show us our sin, to magnify our need of a Savior. Need of a Savior? Yes, our, our need of a Savior. Because the sting of death, the result of sin is that we will die, not just physically, but eternally, separated from a right and redeemed relationship with God, separated from his eternal presence to bless. Guys, that's a bad state to be in. That's not where we wanna be. That's what the truth is about who we are in light of who God is. But Paul doesn't leave us without hope. Thanks be to God, right, who gives us victory through Jesus, the one who became the curse to satisfy the law, the one who became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become righteousness. Jesus gives us the answer for the problem of sin. He is the one who gives us opportunity to avoid the punishment that we deserve. He gives us a share in his victory over the law, over sin, and over death. God's grace reigns in the place of sin. We can live a victorious life in Christ. We don't need to live defeated, but we can live victoriously when we have given our lives to Jesus. So let me ask you have, you, have you done that? Have you put your trust in him? Do you have the hope of heaven in a resurrection body? Are you stuck falling short of the law, short of the glory of God? And in turn, you're stuck missing out on an imperishable, immortal, powerful, glorious resurrection body that gets to be in the presence of God. Guys, we can fix that. You can fix that today. Surrendering your life to Jesus, allowing his blood to, to cover you, saying, God, forgive me for the wrong that I've done. I want your righteousness to be counted as my own. Guys, do that today. Don't leave here today without knowing that you have the hope of heaven. And if you haven't done that, I would love to talk with you before you leave this morning. I would love to talk with you more about how you can trust and know that you have an eternal hope in Christ. And when we do that, that's something to celebrate, right? Salvation is something that is exciting, that we celebrate. We mark it with baptism like we will next week. But it's not just salvation that we celebrate. Every single day we should celebrate the gospel. And so that's our next application point, is that we should rejoice in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
you guys see the power of the gospel coming alive in this text? Right, if we're trusting in Jesus, we can daily live victoriously because we share in his victory. Right, we share in an eternal victory. It's not just merely something that happens at salvation, but every single day. My wife and I have been reading through a book uh, called Gospel-Centered Kids Ministry, and one of the quotes from it that she really loves that I wanted to share with you guys is this. It says, the gospel is not merely a five-minute explanation of how to become a Christian. It's the sustaining foundation for what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Right? It's beyond just getting saved, but it is that power that we are being saved by. The grace of God is reigning from now until eternity. Romans 5, verses 20 and 21 say this. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of us in Christ, grace is what reigns in our life now until eternity. The idea, however, is not to continue to sin to get more grace, right? That's not the equation. Romans 6 goes on to spell it out very, very clearly. We don't continue to sin so that we get more grace, but rather, we know that we've won the victory, right? We die to sin, we put that off, we put off our flesh, and we strive for godliness. We strive for the hope of heaven, that sin would have no more dominion on our lives, and that everything that we do, everything that we do would point back to the gospel. That would be a rejoicing in the eternity and hope of heaven. So I have a, a funny story to share with you guys that I think highlights this, and uh, if not, maybe it's just a good, good brain break for you, okay? But here it is. Some of you might have heard this, but recently my, my wife and my daughters and I, we went to Chick-fil-A. It was Cal Appreciation Day, you know, so we were all dotted up with the masks and, you know, ready to get our free sandwich, and it was a ton of fun. The place was busy, so we ordered our food. Have patient hands, please, three-year-old daughter. It'll be okay. And uh, it was fast because it's Chick-fil-A. You know, they're pretty quick. And uh, as our food comes around the corner and gets placed at our table, here's what my daughter says. Jesus is alive! Right? She was so excited that her food was finally here. She praised Jesus for his victory over sin and death. Again, maybe not the best application, but here's what I'm hoping you're understanding from that. The resurrection is something that we can point to in more than just our salvation. Something that we can point to in everyday life, in every situation. That truth, that power of the gospel is something we should cling to in all that we do. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? How are we doing at clinging to the power of the gospel and celebrating and rejoicing in what God has done? So let's give some examples here, all right? First, let's talk about those of us who are parents in the room. Do you parent in a way that rejoices in and focuses on the victory of Jesus? Right, when your child sins, like maybe puts their little sister in a headlock, maybe speaking from experience, um, you just say, don't do that! That's, that's not probably good. So you say, oh, Let's use our nice hands. That's a little better response, but here's maybe the best response that points them to, to the gospel. Hey, Jesus died on the cross for us to show his kindness. He rose from the grave to give us the power to have nice hands. So let's ask Jesus to give us the grace to love our little sister well. As a parent, do we discipline in a way that points them to the salvation that we have in Christ? Do you see that as a chore or an opportunity to give them grace? Just like the law exposes our sin, our discipline can help our child see their sin, but in turn, we have the answer, right? We have the hope. We can point them to Jesus. How about in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods, right? Do you see someone 
and they think, that guy is not really rejoicing. Someone who claims to be Christ, and really they're not showing victory over sin and death in their life. They look no different from everyone around them, or maybe they're even grumpy and unapproachable. Maybe people don't even know you because you're not living, sharing the good news of Christ. Right? He's won. He's got a victory. When, when my team wins an athletic event, I start getting really full of myself, like, man, we just won this. Man, don't take us on. Man, we got this. I'm on the team now, right? I'm not actually playing, but it's a victory that I've won. Man, if we are in Christ, we have shared in the victory of him over death on the cross, We should be blabbing about that to everyone. We should be excited. We should be rejoicing and telling others about it. Our lives should look different and we should be asking them to come and join that with us. To join that team. How about this? Do we rejoice even in the hard things? I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that we all face hardships. I know that there's people in our church that are struggling with them right now. With addictions, with infertility, with financial hardship, with loneliness, with chronic pain. Maybe you've lost a loved one recently and even one who doesn't have the hope of Christ. Guys, these are things that grieve the Lord. They're a part of the effects of sin. There are things that, that we should detest. But yet our posture in bearing them should still be of worship and of joy in the Lord. Guys, even when it hurts, we praise God because our joy isn't in our circumstances now, but in our circumstances then, and in eternity, in the future that we have. Right, our joy looks different. We may manifest it differently, but make no mistake, there should be joy in our lives, even in the hard things. We should count it all joy when we face trials. So I want to say this. If you're here and you're hurting today, I want to encourage you to, to share that with somebody. I don't keep that to yourself. That's not allowing the victory of Christ to work in you. I don't keep it in. If you're struggling with sin and not having victory over that, don't keep it in. Share that with someone today. That's part of why we're pushing small groups, right? That accountability and that relationship is how we continue to encourage each other to pursue that victory we have in Christ. Guys, don't hold anything in. Get into community, get into relationship. Rejoice in what the Lord has done and encourage one another in that walk as well. Guys, we have the opportunity to point one another to the victorious cross of Christ. Right? Thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God for his victory, the victory won by our Lord. No wonder Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? Every moment of this life, even though he longs for heaven, is an opportunity to point to the grace of Jesus. He wanted to depart, but he knew that in the waiting, he was gonna be focused and work hard. And that's where we turn to in verse 58 as we wrap up the text. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whenever Paul says therefore, right, that should tell us that this is how we are to respond. Everything that I just talked about with the resurrection, this is how it should look like in your life, living out this truth. And I would say we can summarize verse 58 into two specific action steps that we should abide in and labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. We should abide in and labor for our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's talk about abiding, right? It says to be steadfast or to be immovable. That means uh, there's no swaying. You are staying where you're at. And abiding means that we are remaining stable or in a fixed state, right? We're continuing in a place or condition. We are 
fixed firm on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't sway from that. We fill ourselves with that. That is the power that we have each and every day to live. Now, how do we practically pursue that? What does it look like to abide? How do we abide in Christ? Now, I hope that these are not unfamiliar things to you, but um, these are some, some practical ways, not an exhaustive list, but ways that I think we can help evaluate where are we really at in abiding? Can I grow in this? So I stole this list from Pastor Rob Willie from Quorumdale Bible Church in the Quad Cities, um, but I think these are helpful for us to think about. Six ways to abide in Christ. We spend time with the Lord in prayer. We study the word. We make Jesus the constant companion of our thoughts. That's a hard one. That's a convicting one. We go to church every week. We get involved in others' lives, right? We are in a small group, in a community together, and we serve others. Evaluate yourself. How am I doing on these things? Again, not an exhaustive list, but if these aren't happening, we may be struggling to abide in Christ. The hope of the resurrection calls for us to be steadfast and immovable. So let's do that. Let's pursue that. That's an intentional action, abiding in him. And speaking of serving, the last one on our list, let's turn to the idea of labor. Right? The passage says that we should be abounding in the work of the Lord. We should know that we labor not in vain. So what does it look like to labor? Well, the idea, the definition that I want you guys to hold on to is that labor is the expenditure of physical, mental, or spiritual efforts for a purpose. You're giving effort, but it's for a purpose, right? It's not in vain. And it also comes with a connotation of being hard, right? You think about labor, that's something that takes some effort, takes some work, maybe some sweat on your brow. But guys, it's worth it. Right? There's eternal significance. It's not in vain. Scripture all over the place, and even specifically Jesus in Matthew 25, tells us that there are rewards that we will reap for working hard. Paul is encouraging his brothers in Christ to pursue laboring for the kingdom. It's worthwhile. It's not in vain. And you may have seen this already, but I want to point out that it's both we who work and God who works. We work and God works, right? It's the work of the Lord. It's working in the Lord. We are the one doing the work, but it is of God and it is in his power. Not our own strength, not our own purposes, but his strength and his purposes, It's got to be both abiding and laboring. If we're just abiding and we're being lazy and not working or we're not taking opportunities that God has put on our plate, that's not doing what the hope of the resurrection should cause us to do. And if we're just working without abiding, we are going to burn out and crash and be a mess and not give God the glory that he deserves. Guys, here's the deal. I, I understand burnout both personally and in ministry. I talk to my wife. We have, we have been in that place And there was times when we weren't abiding in the Lord. I want to say that I think the number one issue of us getting burnt out is that we are not taking time to abide. It's not that we're laboring too hard. It's that we're failing to abide in the Lord. Our labors do wear us down, but Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. We need to abide in Christ so that we can labor for him. If you're in a place of burnout, seek wise counsel. Find time to get rest. I'm not saying we don't take a Sabbath. I'm not saying that we don't find some time for retreat or for vacation. Those things are necessary. They're biblical, and we need to do them. But we don't just drop out and disappear. Right? We're missing the chance to, to grow when we do that. 
you guys see that? It says we should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. That's not wiggle room, not just when it's easy or when I have energy or it's my gifting or, oh, that's a perfect opportunity for me. No, always inside the church and outside of the church. We should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. So how are you doing in that? Are you active in ministry? Are you abounding in his work? Are you doing as much as you can for the Lord? It's not just serving every three weeks at church, although it should start there. But are we doing all that we can to follow what God says through Paul's words that we should have as a result of the resurrection? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And again, this plays out in many ways in our church, in our community, loving our neighbors, bringing them a meal, getting out of our comfort zone to share the gospel, sacrificially loving our families. The list could go on and on. And if you're struggling with ideas of how to labor, I would love to talk with you about what that looks like. But here's the deal. We need to be willing to do the work of the Lord. And I also want to say this. It's, it's a growing into that. We don't just take on the world right away, okay? From experience, that's not a good way to do it. You will crash and burn. But the Lord promises to grow our capacity. Those who are faithful with little, he will entrust much with. But God will grow your capacity. When you are pushed, when you are stretched, you will grow. Again, I think back to where me and my wife were six years ago and what stretched our capacity is different. By God's grace, he's entrusted more to us. Guys, we have to be willing to abide in the Lord and we also have to be willing to abound in the work of the Lord because it's worth it. Every bit of effort, every bit of tears, every bit of hurt, every bit of laboring, every bit of money and time, it is, it is worth it because there is a reward. And that reward is eternity with Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, he uh, has a quote that I think is powerful for us as we think about this idea. He said that faith in the resurrection produces a consciousness of boundless and endless power for work. Think about that. Boundless and endless power for work that comes from faith in the resurrection. Think about this. All power from God, immortal, imperishable, took on flesh. He humbled himself. He was a baby. He grew up facing every temptation and hardship that we needed to, culminating in three years of grueling ministry where everyone hated him. He was ridiculed and he was crucified, the most embarrassing, undignified way to die. And worse than that, and this is even hard to, to really comprehend and explain, but for a moment, the eternally triune God was separated as the Father turned his face away from the Son. That is what Jesus was willing to go through, that we could be restored to him, that we could have the hope of resurrection. Guys, that fuels me. That is my motivation, that he would do that for me. I want to be with him for eternity, and I'm going to do all that I can in the time that he's given me here on this earth. That's the fuel of the gospel. When it's rightly understood, we should be always satisfied in that truth. So let me ask you this, leave you with a final question to ponder. What are you picturing and how is that fueling you in your daily life? What are you picturing, and how is that fueling you in your daily life? Are you seeing the resurrection for what it truly is, and is it truly keeping you steadfast and immovable, solid on the foundation of the gospel? And then is there evidence of that, that that abiding is causing you to work in the Lord and for the Lord? 
as hard as you can. The, the joy of Christ's victory that we share in is that fuel that gets our present practice in motion. This picture, this hope of heaven, this hope of eternity, this resurrection body, that is what we long for. But is that picture fueling you daily? Is that where you are turning to? All right, we face suffering and hardship and sin in this natural life. But let's rejoice in the fact that we have a hope of heaven to look forward to. Right, and let's live like that now. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and the truth of the resurrection. Jesus, we thank you that in your resurrection, you have given us also the hope of eternity in heaven. God, not only do we avoid the punishment that we deserve, but you give us the good gift of spending eternity with you in bodies that are going to be even beyond what we can imagine. God, in light of that, would that fuel how we live now? Would that motivate our service for you? Would that motivate our love of others? Would that motivate our worship? God, would our hearts be stirred to worship by the realities that there's a hope of heaven waiting for those of us who are in Christ? God, we thank you for the promises that you have given us that we can hold fast to. Because, Lord, we look forward to the day where we will be with you face to face. God, where we will no longer bear the burden of sin. Lord, would that be what pushes us every single day to look more and more like you and do as much as we can for you? God, would that be how we respond now in worship to you? We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.